0: We're going to dig into and talk about straight up, undiluted, the gospel. The gospel. We're heading into Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to take four weeks. We're not going to hurry through this. I'm going to take four weeks with Romans 10 verses 1 to 4. Because I want us to look at what is the gospel. And then I also want us as we head on further into Romans 10 to notice how God has called those of us who have been saved been made right with God to share this good news with the people around us. But for those of you that were with us in Romans chapter 9, it wasn't that long ago. If you were with us in Romans chapter 9, you might be thinking, but Brad, wait a minute. Romans chapter 9 in a big way was all about God's sovereign electing love. God is sovereign. God elects. And so you might be wrestling now a little bit with how to reconcile these two things with each other. Saying if God is sovereign and he elects, then why should I bother sharing the gospel with anyone around me? Well, if that's you this morning, apart from God's word, which is most helpful, let me recommend two resources you might consider picking up. Because I'm not going to try to give any further explanations on how we can reconcile these two things. The mystery of God's election and man's responsibility to share and to respond. But two resources that could give you some more thinking and help and study. And they're both in the resource center. One is a little paperback book by J.I. Packer titled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's little. It's not a tough read. It's excellent. Excellent. So if you're still thinking and the wheels are spinning, you say, I want more on that. Grab it. Also, I would recommend a series I did a number of years ago that I simply titled, Let God Be God. And I try to address, because I've been a pastor 30 years, I try to address those questions that people have most, where they're most confused, where they push back most when we try to teach both, God is sovereign and man is responsible. So consider picking up one or the other if you think you want to think about this some more. Today I've titled the message: "What if you don't think you need to be saved? Do I really need to be saved?" Because what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Romans 10 verses one to four, and I'm going to stay there for four weeks. Yeah, It's going to be good. Because we are going to hit it straight on, undiluted the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? And then later in chapter 10, we're going to get to and share this good news with others. But we're going to park it right there and hover over and dig into what is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? But particularly, why do so many people balk at it? Why do so many people resist the good news of the gospel? See, even as I use this word saved, I do believe the word saved in the Christian camp is a fairly offensive word to other people. Because as soon as you say the word saved, it infers that there are other people who are what? Lost or not. And most people think, I'm not lost. I don't feel very lost. I know exactly what I'm doing. I, I, don't talk about me that way. And when you use the word saved, I think there may be some of you who when you hear the word saved, it conjures up visions of wild-eyed, zealous Christian fundamentalists. Holding placards and screaming through little cheap sound systems. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I lived in South Carolina for 15 years. And there was a man in our community. who's not a friend. But I recognized him because he always showed up outside of any big venue. A coliseum, football stadium, whatever. And there he would be screaming at everyone that they were going to hell and needed to be say it saved. saved and if you and if you didn't recognize his face which is unlikely and you didn't recognize his screaming voice which is also unlikely you would know it was the same man because he also had a beat up van that was always parked right on the curb and in big black letters down the side it said turn or burn so effective not people were flocking to him for this good news not not when i was in high school my twin brother and i dated another set of twins because we all worked together at mcdonald's say (laughs) oh in my little paper hat we had to wear paper hats at mcdonald's back then they got it so good today they look so cool paper hat and black clip-on tie with a white shirt you had to iron yeah i worked there 100 years ago so, this older girl that worked there thought it was so sweet and she hooked us up for, for, oh, that's not a good term today. Back then, that just meant you went out. She put us together. <laughs> we did not hook up. We, she put us together to go out on a date. And my brother went on to marry the girl. I did not marry her her twin sister. But I'll never forget the first day I went to pick her up for the first date, you know, And I'm at the front door and I need to go back and meet the parents. But the dad was out of town. He traveled a lot. And so I'm going back to the back of the house to the den to meet mom. Oh, my goodness. When I stepped into the doorway, she was sitting in a chair. She did not rise. She was reading a paperback book. She was smoking a cigarette. She laid down her book. She snubbed out her cigarette. And she looked me square in the eye. And then she shocked me. By not saying any of the things that I was accustomed to hearing mothers say to young men who were about to take their daughter out. Nothing about sexual purity. Nothing about curfew. None of all that. And so as I stood in front of her chair that seemed like a throne, I'm in my bright red Izod shirt. I got white jeans on. And yes, I have white cowboy boots with little brown tips on the toes. Oh, there was that sad day. Yes. I just didn't know it was sad. So I'm standing there and she looks up at me and she says, I understand you're Baptist. And I want you to know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear any talk about me or anybody in this family needing to be, say it, saved. saved. And when she said the word saved, she Spit it out like a cobra spitting venom. <laughs> Saved. I believe all I said was yes ma'am and spun on my little boots. <laughs> but we did date for a while and I, and I came to know that she had grown up in Greenville, South Carolina where fundamentalist Christians had yelled and screamed at her all of her life that you're going to hell And you need to be saved. You are going to hell. And you need to be saved. But somehow it had not been communicated in a way that sounded like good news. And so she wanted nothing to do with it. Now, in light of all those abuses and more... Should we let go of the word saved? Should we get it up? Give it up? Should we drop it? Well, we don't get to make that decision. Because when you open your Bible... You'll see that the Bible uses this word all over the place. In fact... 273 times it uses the word saved. Nine of them are in our letter to the Romans. So I want you to turn in your Bibles and let's see how Paul uses this word saved. Turn to Romans chapter nine because we're gonna catch the end of nine as we head into 10 because they go together. Romans chapter nine, beginning of verse 30, I hear the rustling of pages because I want you to have a Bible. If it's not rustling, it needs to be that you're looking at an app in your lap. But I want you to see this For yourself in the Bible. Romans 9 verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness. Have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel. Pursuing the law of righteousness. Has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by. Say it. Faith. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone as it is written. Now he quotes from Isaiah as it is written. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Now, look at me. Are we talking about an inanimate object? Are we talking about a rock? Who are we talking about? We're talking about a person and he's the cornerstone. But he's also a stumbling block. Because here's, here here's his next phrase indicates it's a person. A rock of offense. And whoever believes on him. Who's him? Jesus. Will not be put to shame. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be, say it, saved. saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God one of the sweetest phrases in all the Bible is coming up in verse 4 for Christ is the end of the law end of the law for righteousness so the law is not bad but as far as getting righteousness, no more. And you never got it that way anyway. But it's the end. Christ fulfilled the law, and it, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now I want you to notice how Paul starts this section with a familiar and characteristic rhetorical question. You see it in verse 30? That is a pattern. That's not the first time he said, what shall we say then? It's the fifth time that Paul has used this in the letter to the Romans. In chapter 4 verse 1, in chapter 6 verse 1, in chapter 8 verse 31, and already in chapter 9 verse 14, and here it is again in chapter 9 verse 30. And what's going on is every time Paul says, what shall we say then? It's in light of some very important stuff he's already articulated, and he's anticipating a point of misunderstanding, a direction you could head that would be totally wrong and he's concerned that you not do that. It's a critical turning point and a powerful conclusion to whatever he's been driving home to them to make sure don't misunderstand this. And so what he wants us to not misunderstand is even though God is sovereign and he elects and it is mysterious and glorious and majestic, there's a flip side to that coin of God's sovereignty. It's human responsibility and we're not robots, and people are not predestined to hell, and we're called to share the good news, and the good news goes out, and whosoever will, may, what? That was weak. Whosoever will, may what? Come, come, come. So he wants to make sure now that they understand there's human responsibility, you must respond to the gospel, and we must share it. So here's my question for these next four weeks. Why do so many people, surely you've run into this in the neighborhood, in the gym, on an airplane, at work, with your sister-in-law at Christmas. When you became a Christian, did you not think this was about the best news you'd ever heard? And you're trying to tell other people about it. Have you run into anyone that looked at you like, not interested? In fact, a little hostile, why are you talking to me this way? Why do so many people balk at the free offer of the gospel of salvation? That's what I want to answer. And I'm going to give you four reasons that I think we can see from Romans 10, 1 to 4. Four reasons people balk. I'm going to give them all to you today, but we're just going to dig into the first and we're going to take one a week. So these are also great weeks to invite a friend, to bring someone who's wondering what is the gospel really all about? What is church really all about? What's the main thing? Bring them. Here's the four reasons. Number one, the reason people balk is you just might not think you need to be saved. Like, what are you talking about? Why are you telling me this? Number two, you might already be caught up in a flurry of religious activities. I am busy, busy, busy doing church stuff, church stuff. Look at my calendar. I'm not a pagan. Number three reason someone might balk is you might not be willing to swallow your own self-righteousness and cry out to God. I really am pretty good, and I'm better than a lot of other people. Look around, Brad. There's a lot of things I haven't done that some people do. I'm better. I'm better. And number four, you might still be confused about why God gave us the law. We got people tangled up in the law and the Ten Commandments saying, Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, I try to keep treat people the way I'd want to be treated. Yay. But that doesn't save you. Those four reasons. Let's take the time that remains to look at the first. You might not think you need to be saved. You see, that was the problem with the Jews in Paul's day. And it wasn't a Jewish problem. It was not just an ethnicity problem. It is a human problem. One of our biggest problems is we just don't think we're that. You got to say it like this, that bad. We just don't think we're that bad. And so unless you're convinced of your true condition and your lostness and your hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ you're not going to be interested in the remedy in the free offer of salvation it's been over 10 years now since my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and praise God she's clean and clear and doing well but I still remember it well because those of you that have experienced it or have loved ones that have it rocks your world when you get that news and the discovery of that cancer initiated a long journey for my mom A journey that included surgery, months of chemotherapy, weeks of radiation, dozens of bad side effects, and even a a couple more years of taking by tablet form a mild form of radiation. Quite a journey. But I guarantee you, my mother never would have taken the first big step into any of that. Unless she had first been convinced by her doctor that she did indeed have cancer that it was life threatening and that it needed to be addressed quickly and radically see make sure you understand it's not that the Jews did not think there were any bad people out there somewhere they were just not those people the Jews believed that the Gentiles that's anybody that's not a Jew The Jews believed that the Gentiles were despicable and in desperate need of rescue. In fact, they called all Gentiles dogs. That was like the lowest, lowest term in their day. Dogs. But it never crossed their minds that they needed to be saved. That they needed grace. That they needed to be rescued. Because in their minds, they were not in trouble like other people. They were God's chosen people. Children of Abraham. But Paul has already made it absolutely clear in this letter that it doesn't matter about ethnicity. It doesn't matter about skin color. It doesn't matter about gender. It doesn't matter about what's sitting in your bank account. It doesn't matter about what degrees after your name, your education. All, all are in need of God's rescue. Let me show you in Romans 3 if you forgot. Go left in your Bible, Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are, what's the next word? Say it again. All under sin. There is none righteous, no, not, say it, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, don't be confused. He doesn't mean there's no one that's ever done a good act or a kind thing. There's no one that's ever been done anything good out of a completely pure motive that will merit them salvation. The kind of good that only Jesus could do that would cause the father to say, my well beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Nobody. Skip to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. You know what, one of, one of our biggest problems is? You can't hear the good news because you're running your mouth so much about how good you already are. You've got to stop it. Stop it. Stop it. So, God isn't doing this because He's punitive, He's a dictator, He's capricious, He loves toying with human beings. In the goodness and love of God, he knows until I get your mouths to stop and I get you to see yourself as I see you in your true condition, guilty before God, you won't even look to my Savior and my Son and my free offer and what I've done for you. I got to get you lost first, guilty first, before you'll even want what I'm offering. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world become guilty before God. But see, the Jews refuse to accept this spiritual diagnosis. And pretty much, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, where we see the life of Christ here on earth, you will find the Jews fighting with him constantly, debating him constantly, pushing back constantly, and yea, verily, trying to throw him off cliffs and stone him and kill him. That's how much this ticked them off. They were not mildly disagreeing. And in John 8, you can see one of these heated exchanges between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And it's only one of many we could turn to that that makes it absolutely clear that as Jesus tried to offer them hope and salvation and forgiveness and freedom, they were totally confused. They didn't even have a category for thinking of themselves as sinners who needed to be saved. And so they couldn't figure out why he kept talking to them this way. Now hit pause. Push away from the Jews. What about you? What about you? I suspect there are people sitting here in this room today. And you are missing the same category that the Jewish leaders in that day were missing. You say, what's that, Brad? I don't have a Bible verse for this. I made this up, but I like it. I think the category is called this. It's the, oh, I am a sinner. And I'm, I'm being serious. I've been a pastor 30 years. It's not that people haven't heard the word. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone in small groups share a testimony. I know of people who grew up in pastor's homes I of people who who have already served as missionaries. I I know people who've done all kinds of things that their testimony includes. But there was this point in my life for the first time ever, it truly gripped me. Oh, I am a sinner. Those verses are talking about me. And even as they talk that way, I always think it's interesting. I'll look around the room, whoever else is there, and I can see some people like dogs with their heads cocked thinking... Whatever, we all know that. But there's a difference between hearing it and acknowledging it and being smitten by it. What about you? Have you ever, and here's how I want to say it and here's how I want to ask you. Have you ever truly, truly, willingly, no one else drug you over there, willingly, humbly, and completely thrown yourself into the category of sinner and said, oh, I am a sinner. We're not just talking about people out there somewhere that are far worse than me, that have made really bad choices, but that's not like me. Have you ever? Now, I want to make a bold statement. If not, if you've never willingly, humbly, completely thrown yourself into the category of sinner, please don't put yourself in the category of Christian because the one precedes the other. Christ only died for sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Christ rescues sinners. And he rescues every sinner who ever sees themselves as a sinner and cries out for mercy. But that's the starting point. If you haven't gotten there, your life may look good. You may have all kinds of things you could point to, but you're still on your way to hell and a Christless eternity. Have you had that? Oh, I am a sinner moment. Turn to John 8 and let me show you the heated exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders that day. John chapter 8. And what you're going to see as we read this is you're going to hear a verse that I bet you know that maybe you've quoted. But maybe you've never seen it in context. John chapter 8 beginning in verse 30. And he spoke these words. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Here's the verse. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? Now, I don't have a problem with, I even do it myself sometimes, quoting that verse in a different context. It could free you from misunderstandings about marriage or parenting. Know the truth. The truth about whatever God says and it will set you free. But my friends, in the context, do you know what that truth is that he's talking about? That is one that we resist the longest and try to deny the most? The truth that you are a... Say it. When you know that truth, it'll set you free. Why? Because that's the first step in the direction of saying... I need help. I can't do this. I can't rescue myself. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to go to heaven. The law shows me I fall short. I need a savior. I need mercy. I need grace. It'll set you free because it'll point you in a new direction and the blinders come off and the spiritual resume you've been gripping and waving around gets thrown to the ground. You say, I got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. Give me, Jesus. I need Jesus. I have no other hope. Truth shall make you free. Make you free. And he ends in verse 36 by saying, and whom the son makes free is free indeed. One of the the greatest things we need to be freed from is our own stinking self-righteousness. And spiritual resume that gets in the way of truly experiencing new birth and new life and power as he comes into our life. But it only starts when you are spiritually bankrupt, emptied and ready to say, oh, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Have mercy on me. Oh, God. He's never turned anyone away. Anyone. Anyone away. When they reach that point and they pray that way. What about you? Have you been set free? Not unless you have come to the point where you have thrown yourself willingly, humbly, and completely into the category of sinner. Sinner. If you're still busy defending and promoting your own spiritual righteousness... Don't call yourself a Christian. Listen, my friend, you need to take a big, bold, black marker and whatever it is that you think makes you different than other people that you think causes God to need to accept you, just write across that spiritual resume. Big, bold capital letters. S-I-N-N-E-R and throw it down. Be done with that. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book, The Grace and Truth Paradox, says, because grace is so incomprehensible to us, we bootleg conditions so that we won't look so bad. And God's offer won't seem so counterintuitive. By the time we're done qualifying the gospel, we're no longer unworthy and powerless. We're misguided souls. We're no longer wretches and grace is no longer grace. He goes on to tell of a time he was speaking at a conference and a woman sang his all-time favorite song, which is the most well-loved and known song in the world. It's It's been recorded by more artists than any other song. It's been translated into more languages than any other song. You know what I'm talking about? Amazing grace. And he said, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. It was beautiful. Until she got to the tenth word. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. He said, my heart sank. The word wretch had been edited out. And yet the man who wrote the song, John Newton, knew he was a wretch. And that's what made God's grace so amazing. Get this, folks. You want to drop wretch out of the song? Go ahead and drop amazing off the front of grace. It's no longer amazing if you're not a wretch. The two go hand in hand. Don't give up wretch and keep amazing. Quite frankly, it's not that amazing. Because you think, yeah, God did good to get me on his team. He says, if we're nothing more than morally neutral souls, do you see what that does? It guts grace when you cut wretch out of the song you shrink grace you reduce it to something more sensible and less surprising and then he he concludes with this powerful statement the worst thing we can teach people is that they can be good without jesus the fact is god doesn't offer grace to good people any more than doctors offer life-saving surgery to healthy people folks, what the Bible actually teaches clearly and repeatedly is that we are a room full of dying people. Right now, we are dying physically. And if you don't know Christ, you are dead spiritually. And yet I'm grateful most of you showered. We don't smell death, right? I smell Air Apostle 87 right up here as I sweat. That's me. And you sprayed some stuff, perhaps, and you've got we we don't you don't smell death. Those of you that have had an occasion to be close to death, either in military or in the hospitals, I have. There's nothing quite like the specter of death, the pallor of the skin. It's unsettling, death at close range, and because we don't see it and we don't sense it. We don't have a heightened awareness of where we truly are. You are in the process of dying. I don't care what you're smearing on your skin. I don't care what you're grinding from roots and drinking and eating and snorting and shooting. You're only prolonging the inevitable. Don't hear me saying don't be healthy. But be ready to die because you will. The Bible tells us in Romans 5:12, therefore just as through one man, Adam, Sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to how many? All men, because how many have sinned? Because all sinned. It's the same thing you see in Romans 3.23 where he said, for, say it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 was the verse that God used to save my life mother. She grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She was living in East Ridge. If you know anything about the South, as long ago as he was there, that's a lot of nice people. They are so nice. They'll have you over in a heartbeat. Very polite. She was super nice. And she grew up in church all her life. She was in Sunday school and morning worship week after week after week after week. But no one had ever told my mother that she was a, say it, sinner because she was in a church that was more like a country club it was more like one of those be nice to everybody especially those did they have a word sinner did they ever use it yeah those sinners that are out there you're going to run into them every now and then be really nice because we inside the walls of this church are not like them and that's evidenced by the fact that we're here in church And so at 31 years old, raising little five-year-old twin boys, (laughs) that was precious. (laughs) She was confident that she had never done anything really horrible. And so her first response to Romans 3.23, listen to me, was to be very offended. Oh my, she was offended that the vacation Bible school my twin brother and I were attending was sending us home with a worksheet that said, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And they only gave us black crayons. Color it black. There's no other option. Now, that part's not true. But Romans was 3.23 was the worksheet that went home. And mom and dad are sitting up at night looking at this, saying, why'd they give this to them? They're precious. And she made the connection. If they're calling them sinners, I guess they're calling us sinners. And she thought that only murderers, rapists, drunkards, terrible people that have done terrible things were sinners. Here's the deal. My mom was guilty of the very same thing, the same blinding sin that each one of us struggles with. And that's the inability to see ourselves as God sees us. But it's worse. It gets worse. And the amazing ability we have to compare ourselves to others and always come out on the high ground. I said, well, I'm not like them. I haven't done that. I've made better choices than that. Ah, 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 ah. My mother, without realizing it, and some of you sitting here maybe doing this without realizing it. She had herself starring in the lead role of Luke chapter 18. Let me show you what I'm talking about. See if you can find this person in Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Now, Here's what I love about Jesus. A lot of things. But as you read the gospels, he, because he's God and man, would often discern who was in the crowd, what he had mostly in the crowd. I would love that capacity as a preacher, but I don't have that. And so often, people were gathered around him who were, they knew how bad they were. You know, the tax collectors and prostitutes and Whatever. But there were times that Jesus knew. You know who I got here? I got the country club people here who have themselves in a different category. And so I'd like to rock their world right now. Not because he hates them, because I love them. Because there's no hope for them unless they get rocked. Here's what's happening. Luke 18, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. ...and despised others. Now get this. Those two things always go hand in hand. If you are busy thinking about how good you are... ...you are also busy despising others. You may not say it. You may smile. Or you may say simple things like... ...oh bless her heart. Bless her heart. That actually means you disgust me. And you've made horrible choices... ...that I haven't made. Bless your heart. Bless her heart. Self-righteous and despising others... Verse 10, so he tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. This was a super religious person that everyone looked up to. One a tax collector. Now a tax collector in that day was one of the worst people. People hated them. Why? Because here's how it worked. The government would say, you, you didn't have, if you think it's bad today, at least we got a chart with percentages and you don't have to like it. You're like, I'm in that category. Bummer. But in that day, they said, here's what we want from every household. Go get whatever you can get and you keep the difference. And that's your salary. That's your income. People hated tax collectors. So we got a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he has the gall open one eye and look around and pick somebody out that's there and say even like this, like this person I thank you even as this tax collector I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess and the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a, say it Sinner. sinner and look at what happens in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the one who just said, I'm a sinner, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now folks, that word justification, we've already seen it in Romans. I can't repeat the whole thing, but it is marvelous. What it means is the word justified is a legal term that means what was against you has been wiped out What was never yours to begin with has been given to you. And the man hasn't hasn't even changed yet. He hasn't left where he's standing. It's not that now he started to live better. And God said in that moment when he said, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. His sin and his wrong was wiped out and the righteousness of another was given to him by faith. Say, thank you, Lord. And that's still the deal today. That's why we call this good news. That's why we got to share this with other people. That man went home justified rather than the other. Don't miss the point of Jesus' story. Until you have humbly, willingly, others can drag you towards that category. You can get in there, just please someone, and say, finally, like, yeah, I'm a sinner. But until you have willingly, humbly, and completely thrown yourself into the category of sinner. You're not a candidate for salvation because you don't think you need a Savior. Christ came for sinners. The good news isn't even good news until you've humbled yourself and swallowed the bad news of your true condition before God. See the gospel, folks. This good news that Christ came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that God took on flesh... That God held this standard and told us what was expected. And God said, I'm going to do for you what I actually am the one that says is expected. Because you can't. What a God. Since his only beloved son, he leaves behind the glories and splendor and privileges of heaven. Takes on flesh. Fully human while still being fully God. And completely obeyed the law. That we could never. The only perfect man that ever lived. And he was the God man. And then it's better than that. Then willingly gave his life. He says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Oh, I love this. And I have the power to take it up again. He laid down his life and he took our sin on him. And the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us was poured out on Jesus. That's the gospel. And so the gospel is not just some booster shot for people who already think they're pretty good. The gospel is a CPR, heart-shocking, life-giving truth for people who recognize I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I got nothing to offer. There's no hope for me. That's why Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. Oh, this is good. But when and in what context? When and where and to whom? God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were already turning towards him, looking like good candidates that would make good Christians. Does it say that? While we were still, say it. Say it again. Christ died for us say wow that's the gospel that's why it's amazing grace that's why it's mind blowing but it's not mind blowing until you really recognize oh I am a sinner let me ask you do you have peace with God we're living in a day it's a troubled day no doubt Pandemic anxiety, pandemic fear, pandemic levels of depression, suicide. Kids younger and younger on campuses, all wanting counseling, all wanting mood-altering drugs, all so depressed, all so anxious. One of the worst days we've ever lived in. And yet such advancements with technology, right? All man has to offer cannot give you the peace that only God can give you. A purpose-driven, listen to me, a purpose-driven life. And you have a sense of, I know why I'm here. That gives you peace with yourself and peace with other people around you. Starts with peace with God. Until you have that, your soul will be like a churning ocean that causes up mud. That's what Isaiah says. There's no rest for the wicked. There's no peace. And that's why Romans 5 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by works, faith, we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God? I'm not asking if you're religious. Do you have peace with God? Are you guilty of having yourself in the category of Christian, but now now you've got to back it up and say, "Wait a minute, I never have myself in the category of, "Oh, I'm a sinner." I want to ask you to bow your heads, and I want you to think about this for a minute, because there's nothing more important that you could ponder and wrestle with than what I've presented to you here today. Nothing. Nothing. Do you have peace with God? Have you cried out for mercy? Has your mouth ever been stopped? And have you ever seen yourself as guilty before God in need of a savior?